John chapter number three is where we're at. As we started this series, we're kind of going through the Gospels and uh, refocusing on Jesus, and we've been in John for several weeks now, uh, but we're not just preaching through John, okay? We're, we'll be in other books too, it's just that John's kind of, uh, we're kind of going through almost chronologically here in Jesus' ministry and looking at the things, and so right now we're settling down in John. Uh, but anyway, we're going to be there for another week or two probably at least, but uh, I've been I've been glad to see the, the these passages and be able to meditate on them, to think on them, and look at them, and just be observing Jesus and the way that he went about things and uh, the things that are recorded of him. And as we just really get to set down and pick it apart one passage at a time, you start looking into uh, his heart and things. You start looking at the attitude that he approached things with. You see the things that uh, he's doing and know that they were all done intentionally. Jesus didn't do anything haphazardly. He didn't just rush in like a bull in a china shop. But everything that he was doing was according to the will of God, was according to God's purpose, and was laying the path to the cross. And so as he was dealing with people, as he was dealing with situations, everything was carefully planned, was carefully calculated uh, to get across uh, different ideas about who he is and about why he came and about what he was like. And we, uh, in our Christian life, we can uh, get our minds wrapped up in the things that we've seen from religion. We can get our minds wrapped up in our own experiences and things. We can even uh, be looking at Jesus through our own lens, through our own uh, thoughts and ideas about what he was supposedly like. And sometimes that's even tinted by our personalities and things. But as we come down to looking at Jesus passage by passage and looking at all these different things that he's doing, we're getting an idea of who he is and of what he's like, and hopefully clarifying that a little bit, refocusing on him for who he is and for what he's done. And so what we've been doing so far, we last week we looked at a conversation between Jesus and a man by the name of Nicodemus. And Nicodemus was the best of the best that religion could produce. He was, if you were looking for uh, a prime candidate, a, a perfect example of the Jewish religion, Nicodemus was it. And as he was observing Jesus, as Jesus came onto the, the scene there in Jerusalem and uh, turned the temples over and ran the money changers out and all of those things, uh, as he began setting down and teaching, as he started doing uh, miracles, as he was doing all these different things, he was drawing attention to himself, and he caught the attention of this man, Nicodemus. And Nicodemus had questions, because the way that Jesus was going about things and the things that Jesus was doing and was saying aligned with God, but not with his religion. It aligned with God's word, but not with the way that things were being handled at the time. And so Nicodemus had questions that he needed to answer. He wanted to come and talk to this new teacher here, this uh, new rabbi on the scene, and figure out what's going on here. What is his message? What is his angle? What's he doing? And so whenever he comes to Jesus, uh, he doesn't really get to ask all of his questions because Jesus is going to be tackling something that's more important 
than Nicodemus's questions about religion and picking little things apart. Jesus gets down to the matter and tells Nicodemus, you must be born again. And so Nicodemus had had a high opinion of himself. He was one of the best of the Pharisees. He was extremely religious. He kept the law. He kept all of the, the feasts and the festivals. He gave his tithes. He gave his offerings. He did all of the things that was required of a Jew to the, to the letter, really. And so he said, I am the best that Judaism can offer. I am the product of my religion. But whenever he looked at Jesus, he had too low of an opinion of Jesus and saw him as just merely another man, another preacher, another teacher, another rabbi. And so Jesus brought all of it into perspective when he told him, you must be born again. He said, all of your religion, all of your rules, all of your rituals are worthless. They're not going to get you into heaven. Instead, you need the new birth that only I can provide. You must be born again. And so his opinion of Jesus had to change as well because it was only through Jesus that he could be saved. And so he says, I'm going to be lifted up and I'm going to draw all men unto myself. And we find that after Jesus was crucified, that Nicodemus was one of the ones that came carrying uh, things to embalm the body, to anoint the body with. And so I wonder, and this is just in my mind, I'll have to find out. I'll watch the replay when I get to heaven. But I wonder if Nicodemus watched from a distance all throughout Jesus' ministry. And then whenever Jesus was on the cross and Nicodemus came and he stood at the foot of the cross and he looked up, I wonder if Jesus' message, that conversation that night, began to ring in Nicodemus's ears whenever he says, if I be lifted up and he saw Jesus on that cross, just like Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. And he says, that's what he meant. And he believed. And so it's incredible the way that the Lord worked and dealt tenderly with Nicodemus there. And Nicodemus was born again. I truly believe that. We'll see him in heaven one of these days. And it was a result of this conversation. It was a result of the way that Jesus dealt with him. But today we're going to find out that Nicodemus wasn't the only one that had taken notice of Jesus. Because as Jesus was doing these miracles and was teaching and was confronting the religious establishment, uh, there were crowds that began to flock to him. And unfortunately, the uh, followers of John the Baptist, it didn't set well with them that the crowds were beginning to follow Jesus instead of John. And so let's look at John chapter number 3, and we'll start with verse number 22. It says, after these things... After what things? The things we've been talking about in previous weeks, right? After these things came Jesus and his disciples into the land of Judea, and there he tarried with them and baptized. And John also was baptizing in Anion near to Salem because there was much water there, and they came and were baptized, for John was not yet cast into prison. Then there arose a question between some of John's disciples and the, excuse me, and the Jews about purifying. And they came to John and said unto him, Rabbi, he that, was be, me, he that was with thee beyond Jordan, to whom thou bearest witness, behold, the same baptizeth, and all men come unto him. Might have been a little bit of an exaggeration there. John answered and said, A man can receive nothing except it be given him from heaven. Ye yourselves bear me witness, that I said, I am not the Christ, but that I am sent before him. He that hath the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom 
which standeth and heareth him, rejoiceth greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. This my joy, therefore, is fulfilled. He must increase, but I must decrease. He that cometh from above is above all. He that is of the earth is earthly, and speaketh of the earth. He that cometh from heaven is above all. And what he hath seen and heard, that he testifieth, and no man receiveth his testimony. He that hath received his testimony hath set to it his seal that God is true. For he whom God hath sent speaketh the words of God, for God giveth not to the giveth not the Spirit by measure unto him. For God loveth the Son, and hath given all things into his hand. He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life, and he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we come to you today. Thank you for your blessings, and we thank you for all that you do for us, Lord. We just thank you for this day, Lord, for this time together, and we thank you for your word. We just ask you, Lord, that you would be with us here as we spend the next few minutes, Lord, just meditating on this passage and bringing these thoughts out of it, Lord. I just pray that you would guide me and direct me, that the things that I say would be uh, true and accurate and helpful, and be with each person here. And Lord, I pray that you'd minister to their hearts and minds and draw them to you. Lord, I pray that you would uh, help us, Lord, just to uh, just to have you high and lifted up there in our minds and in our hearts, Lord. Help us have the right focus, the right attitude, the right mindset. And Lord, I pray if there's one here today that don't know you as their Savior, I pray that today would be the day that they would truly be born again. And Lord, we just ask you, Lord, for your blessings once again. We thank you for all you do. In Jesus' name I pray, and amen. So as we look at this passage here, John the Baptist had been ministering for a while. He had been chosen by God before he was ever even born. That's pretty incredible, right? He was chosen by God before he was ever born to be a forerunner of Christ. And so whenever his time came, he came out of the wilderness because we find that he was uh, spending time in desert places. He was clothed with a leather girdle about his waist. He was eating locusts and wild honey. He'd be quite the fellow, wouldn't he? And so when the time came, he came out of the wilderness and he began preaching this powerful message, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Essentially what he was saying was get ready because the Messiah is coming. That was his message. And so for the Jews that hadn't heard a message from God for several hundred years, for the ones who were in oppression by the Romans, the ones that hadn't had a king on the throne in quite some time, or at least a godly king, for the ones there who were looking for deliverance from God, as John burst on the scene, there was an excitement about his message. Yes, he was a strange teacher, but uh, during that time, they were kind of probably getting fed up a little bit with the teachers that they had. They were looking for something new. There was many people who had been turned away from God and away from religion by the things that was going on. And so as John was coming on the scene, they said, we are ready for the Messiah. And so they were coming and they were being baptized of him. They were sitting in droves and listening to him teach and preach about the coming kingdom and about uh, what Jesus was going to be. And so as these crowds were gathering together and hearing his his message and and not put off by his peculiar behavior, and it seemed as if he was fearless and not afraid of anyone, they were excited about what was going on. There was anticipation because the Messiah was coming, and this had brought them all together, 
And this had caused them to kind of uh, uh, crowd around John as a central figure. It was a movement, if you will, that was occurring. And so they were all jumping on the bandwagon. They were all coming up behind John. They were all getting ready. They were all excited about this. And then whenever Jesus came on the scene, some of John's followers began getting a little bit nervous because John called out to Jesus and he says, Behold the Lamb of God, taketh away the sins of the world. you remember that? And he baptized Jesus. He put his stamp of approval on Jesus. And Jesus went his way. He didn't join their crowd, but he went his own way. And he began teaching. He began preaching. And he started drawing crowds to himself. Not only was he drawing crowds to himself, he was drawing some of John's followers to himself. And he seemed to be doing the same thing that John was doing, except Jesus was doing it better. Right? And so they were seeing their movement dwindle. They had uh, high expectations for what was going to happen. They said, we're on the beginning of this. This is going to be a great movement. Things are going to happen. And then it started to fizzle. And so they were concerned. This wasn't the way that they thought things were going to go. And as Jesus was getting the numbers, as he was getting the crowds, they were wondering what was going to happen to them. And we can kind of see a little bit, the uh, same thing going on that happened with Judas. Remember how Judas joined up with the disciples and then whenever things weren't going the way that he thought they should go, he ended up cashing in. And so this is kind of the same thing going on here. And so they would have came to John and they would have said, hey, John, you remember that guy, the one that came out and while you were baptizing in the Jordan over beyond Galilee, you remember him, that one that you endorsed? Well, he's stealing your thunder. He is taking your crowds. He's up in the polls. He's trending on Twitter. They didn't have Twitter. But anyway, he's trending. And so your ministry, your empire, everything that we've been working for is at risk. It's at threat here. And so what you've been trying to accomplish is going to become nothing thanks to this guy that you endorsed. And so what are we going to do about it? And John's reply, essentially, is God is in charge, and I am not. I'm merely his servant. He said, it's not up to me to figure out all of these things, for me to defend my position because it's a position that God gave me to begin with. It's not for me to try to, to control what he's doing or control all these, but God is in control, and I'm not. And so what he tells us here in verse 30, and this is going to be the kind of the focus of our message this morning. He says, he must increase, but I must decrease. And so he must increase, but I must decrease. John knew his place. He had the right perspective. He had the right priority. He said, he is God and I am not. And so I must decrease. And this is so important for us, as we'll see here today, because in our lives, we elevate self to such an extent. We feel as if we need to be in the driver's seat. We are like these men. We have our plans, our desires, the direction that we think that things should go, and we have it all figured out. And when it doesn't go according to our plans, we're frustrated and we're troubled, right? And we don't realize that ultimately we aren't in charge that God is. 
We look at the world around us today, and the idea that this world puts forth is that you need to make something of yourself. You need to build up your own self. You need to create an image. You need to um, determine who you are and project that out on this world and make them accept it. You need to see and be seen. You need to have power. You need to have position. You need to make things happen. And in the world that we live in today, so many things are focused on me. It's focused on me. It is what I can do, what I can build, the name I can make for myself, how I am perceived by everyone else. And we have to force ourselves into this arena of the world. We have to uh, make our identity and build it up into something that honestly, we don't have the power to do. We don't have enough position. We don't have enough power. We don't have enough control to make these things happen. But yet we put so much emphasis on ourselves. Okay? Put so much emphasis on ourselves. And that is a dangerous thing. It is oppressive. It is something that will crush us whenever the power and the uh, our own power, our own strength is what is emphasized. Whenever we have to make it happen, we're going to crumble under that responsibility. It is a dangerous thing. And so whenever John says here, I must decrease, I must decrease. We're not talking about him uh, being self-deprecating. It's not talking about uh, some kind of a false humility. He's not going to try to do less. He's not going to just sit back idly. He's not going to be lazy about things. But instead, he's going to put the emphasis where it belongs. He's saying, I am not capable of doing all of the things that this world says I should be doing. I'm not capable of making all of these things happen. I can't control all of these situations. I can't control even what's going to happen in my own life. And so I need to decrease. I need to get off of the driver's seat and I need to let Jesus be in charge. Okay. And so this is what he's trying to get across. It is a change in priority. It's not about me. It's about him. And that's not oppressive. We think, oh, if we put ourselves as servants to him, that's oppressive. No, it's liberating because I don't have the power. I don't have the ability, but he does. Okay? And so we're going to look at a few things from this passage about why I must decrease. Why I must decrease. The first one I want to bring out in this passage, I must decrease because I'm competing with no one. I must decrease because I'm competing with no one. And so as we look at this passage, John's disciples see Jesus as a rival preacher. They see him as another movement. They see him as something that is a, uh, a threat to them. They see him as a competitor to them. That's kind of messed up, right? Competing with Jesus. But do you ever do that in your life? Set up a competition between you and him? My will versus him. Jesus said as he was praying in the garden, not my will, but thine be done. And sometimes we do that. We're in competition, tug of war over wills. But in this passage, what they were looking at 
is they were saying he's drawing bigger crowds. He is becoming more popular. People are flocking to him. We're losing our influence that we have over people. We're losing this place of prominence that we have gained here. And John knew better than to play that game. And so the way that applies to us is that it is easy for us to fall into competing and comparing. Lay aside the thought that it was with Jesus here in the Bible, okay? They seen him as a competing preacher, as a competing movement. And so how easy is it for us to fall into comparison and competition with our fellow believers? Whenever someone appears to be doing a little better than we are, we're jealous, right? And we're tempted to tear them down or to to think badly toward them. Whenever we feel as if we're doing well, we're lifted up with pride. And what we end up doing is we become the measuring sticks one for another. We start measuring ourselves by the others that are around us, or we start measuring others by ourselves. The Bible says that whenever we compare ourselves among ourselves, we are unwise. And so this is what was going on amongst John's disciples, is they started comparing, they started competing, they made it us versus them, and John says, hold on for a second, we are all on the same team. We're all in this, the same direction. We're all trying to go the same way here. And so it's not us versus Jesus. It's us and them for the cause of Christ, for God. And so whenever we start measuring by one another, what ends up coming as a result of that with this perceived competition, it brings about division and it brings about hypocrisy. Why is it that we feel as if we must hide who we are? Why is it that we feel as if we must put on a facade, that we've got it figured out, that we've got it all together? Why is it that we judge one another and compare ourselves with one another? We feel like it's a competition. But whenever we step back like John does here and say, I'm in competition with no one. You're not my measuring stick. I am not your measuring stick. We are measured by Christ. And you know what? He's not measuring us to condemn us or to put us down. Instead, he's coming alongside of us and he is growing us and he is helping us and he is cheering us on. And so here's the thing. I'm in competition with no one. So I need to just calm my jets just a little bit. I need to decrease just a little bit and realize that it's not me versus you, but it's me and you together for Christ. We're going the same direction. I'm in competition with no one. Second thing that we find here is I must decrease because Christ isn't a threat. I must decrease because Christ isn't a threat. They looked at Jesus and they said, he is going to destroy everything we build up. He's going to destroy our little uh, thing that we've got going over here, our movement. He is a threat to us. And John looks at him and says, he is no threat. But instead, he is the purpose. He is the reason. He is what we've been going for, right? Jesus isn't a threat to my life. He may be a threat to my plans, right? I might have these ideas. I might have everything planned out. I might have my script written out. And Jesus says, hold on for a second. Let me just veto that. I've got something else, right? But it doesn't mean that he's giving us something horrible that he's going to put us through the ringer. It means that he knows better than what we do. He is not a threat to our lives, maybe to our plans, not our lives. The Bible says that he came to give us life and to give it more abundantly. It says the, the enemy comes to uh, steal, steal and kill and destroy. 
but he comes to give life. Says that his ways are better than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts, right? And so whenever he comes in, he's not a threat to us, but instead he is on our side. We see that uh, whenever, I believe it was Joshua, met one of the army of God, I believe it was Christ himself that he met, and he, uh, he approached him and he says, are you against us or are you on my part? And what was his response? Neither. He says, I'm on God's side. I'm on God's part. And so whenever we come to Christ and we say, hey, are you for us or against us? He says, I'm not on your side. I'm not against you. I'm on God's side. And if you're wise, you're going to come along with me, right? That was the idea whenever Joshua uh, encountered the host of the Lord there. It's not, I... <laughs> I'm for you or against you. It's are you with him? Did I lose anyone there? Not are, is God with me? It's am I with him, right? And so Christ isn't a threat. We have plans. We have ideas. And they are so fickle. They're so fragile. They're so easily derailed. We can make our 10-year plan. We can lay everything out and say, this is where I'm going to be 10 years from now. Let me ask everyone here, is any of you where you thought you would be 10 years ago? No. 10 years ago, I wasn't planning on being here. Neither. 10 years ago, Peter wasn't planning on being here with his leave to remain, right? No. 10 years ago, you had bought your house. You've been in it for five years. Were you planning on selling it? Were you planning on back house hunting? And You weren't planning on that, right? Ten years ago, we didn't have it figured out. There are so many bumps and bruises and changes and shifts. Mm-hmm. Nobody saw COVID coming, right? Mm-hmm. I hate to keep bringing that. I'm just giving you an idea how quickly things change. And so whenever we put our lives into his hands, whenever he is having his way, it is not a threat to our lives. Maybe to our plans, but not to our lives. He's not a threat. And so John knew that Jesus wasn't ruining anything. And instead of competing with Jesus, he realized that Jesus was completing what John had started. Right? John came to pave the way. He came to prepare the way for Jesus. And Jesus was giving it value, meaning, purpose. He was bringing about the completion of John's life in ministry and purpose. We might look at John and say, well, John's a bad example. He ended up in jail and beheaded. I don't want that. Any of us volunteering for that? But I don't think that John would see himself as a bad example because here's the thing. God had a purpose. He had a plan for John's life. And whenever John had fulfilled it, God took him home and got him out of the way so that Jesus could increase even more and bring to completion what John had been preaching about throughout his life. I don't think John would have said, hey, keep me alive, keep me in a movement, keep me preaching, keep me having crowds coming up. Keep me baptizing if it was going to stand in the way of Jesus going to the cross and purchasing salvation for whosoever will. See, Jesus is not a threat to our lives, but he brings purpose and fulfillment in our lives. And so while he may be a threat to our plans, he's not a threat to our lives. And his purpose, his plan is greater for us than anything that we can make for ourselves. He has a kind of a knack for turning people's plans upside down. 
Look at the 12 disciples, just as a, just kind of a, a brief thought here. Look at the 12 disciples. Several of them were fishermen. They were planning on retiring fishermen, right? He turned them into preachers. Matthew, the tax collector. He was going to live in his little palace. He was going to cheat his fellow Jews. He was going to go about doing all of those things. And Jesus says, no, I'm going to turn the scoundrel that you are into an honorable man. I'm going to make a preacher out of you. Instead of fleecing the sheep, you're going to be shepherding the sheep. What a change for him, right? All of these people, God had a different plan for, but he had a better plan for them. Third thing that we find here, I must decrease because all things come from him. He's the source. He is the one that all things come from. James chapter 1 verse 17 says that every good gift and every perfect gift cometh down from the Father of lights in whom there is no variableness nor shadow of turning. So he is the source. He is the one that all things come from. In verse number 27, John answered and said, A man can receive nothing except it be given him from heaven. And so John knew that his ministry was of God. He knew that it was dependent upon God. He didn't have the ability to get where he was on his own. He didn't have the ability to keep it going on his own. And he definitely didn't have the ability to worry about what Jesus was doing and what his ministry was going to do or cause it to go one way or the other. Because John knew that he was extremely limited in his abilities. That the only way anything was going to happen in his life and in his ministry is if God brought it about. And so we have all of these grand notions and grand ideas about the way that things should be, about the way we want things to go, but we have an extremely small ability to actually make them happen. And so I think John would be the first one to say that without him, I can do nothing. But through him, I can do all things. And so whenever he says here, a man can receive nothing except it be given of heaven. He says, I got to decrease because I'm not the one that's done this. I'm not the one that made this ministry. I'm not the one that uh, brought this multitude. I'm not the one that has authored this message. I'm not the one that caused any of this. These things have come of God and it is up to him to decide what he's going to do with it. A lot of times we get too possessive over things. We say, this is mine. Look at what I've done. I've made this happen. I've caused this to transpire. And God says, did you really? And so I can do nothing. I must decrease. I'm going to put less emphasis on myself because ultimately it's not up to me. It's up to him. Fourth thing we have here, I must decrease because my life points to him. I'm a representative. My life points to him. John says here in verse number 28, he says, Ye yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but that I am sent before him. He that hath the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom which standeth and heareth him rejoiceth greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. This, my joy, therefore, is fulfilled. He says, my entire purpose, he says, I've told you from the beginning, I'm not the Messiah. I've just come to tell you about him. I'm just a representative. I'm just preparing the way. I'm just pointing to him. We think about ourselves today. We are still the same thing. We are still representing Jesus. We are still preparing 
the world for his coming. We're saying that the Lord is returning, that he came the first time to bring salvation. He comes the second time to bring his kingdom. And we are still here proclaiming this message similar to what John did in his day. We are not here to build our own empires. We're not here to build up our own reputations and to try to create a movement. And we're not here for ourselves. We're here for him. John gives the example here of the bridegroom and the friend of the bridegroom. Now, we understand that marriages would have been a little bit different in Bible days than they are here in our Western culture. Those of you who are from other cultures, your marriage ceremonies are different than what they are here in Ireland, right? And we've talked about that fairly extensively. But at this time, the groom would send his groomsmen, okay, to go and make the arrangements and make things prepared and ready for him to come and get his bride. The closest parallel that we would have today is it's not so much about the groom today, it's about the bride, isn't it? And so the bride has her maid of honor, and the maid of honor is helping her to make the plans, to put things in place, and throwing the bridal shower, and making arrangements, and getting things prepared. But here's the thing, with either the groomsman or with the maid of honor, is her place, is his place, to draw attention to themselves? Is the wedding day about the bridesmaid? If it is, you did a poor job at choosing your bridesmaid, right? The wedding is not about the bridesmaid. The bridesmaid isn't up there, the, the maid of honor. She's not up there to put the focus on herself. She's up there to make sure that things go smoothly for the bride and the groom and that the attention stays firmly on them, right? If she's doing her job well. This is the comparison that John made. He says, it's not about me. I'm just here to prepare the way for him. And as he is here and he's on the scene, I am glad, I am happy, I am full of joy because the attention and the focus is on him. I don't have to be in the spotlight. And so whenever we make everything about us, we've missed the mark. We are here to shine the light onto him. We are here to bring him honor and glory. We are here so that people see him and not us. We look at this world today, we look at religion today, and the, the so-called preachers that stand on the stage, and they have this cult of personality about them, and everybody is worshiping them instead of God. They have usurped his glory. They have stolen it for themselves, and John says, I'm not about to do that because it's not about me, it's about him. He says, at the end of the day, let them forget about me as long as they see Jesus. So I must decrease because uh, my life points to him. Fifth thing we see here. See, whenever I start getting past three and four, you all start wondering, right? Anyway, fifth thing we have here. I must decrease because he is above all and he knows all. Look down at verse 31. He that cometh from above is above all. He that is of this earth is earthly. We have two different perspectives, right? Because he is above all, because he sees all, because all knowledge belongs to him, there is so many things that he is aware of, so many things that he is in control of that I have no clue is even going on. John says, I'm extremely limited in my ability. I'm extremely limited in my knowledge and my perspective. He's seen things from heaven's side. I've only been down here amongst men. I don't know that much more than anybody else, or any, I don't know more than anybody else. I'm speaking on behalf of John. 
I don't know more than anyone else down here, but Jesus has seen it all. He knows everything. He sees everything. And so I just want to get out of his way because he is above all and he knows all. The way this relates to us is as we're trying to get things figured out, as we're making everything about us, Jesus sees the bigger picture. Jesus knows what's around the bend. He knows what's just a little further down our little timeline here, our vapor of life that we live on this earth. And while we're trying to make it about us and we're trying to build our empire, Jesus instead knows what just lies down the road from us. He's already seen all those things. And he is much more capable of being the the pilot of my life, of being the one who is in charge, of being the one that's in control. And so, once again, I need to increase because he sees all, he knows all, and I don't. And how arrogant it is for us to act like we know more than God, right? Sixth thing that we find here, I must decrease because he has all power. See in verse 34 and 35, For he whom God has sent speaketh the words of God, for God giveth not him, giveth not the Spirit by measure unto him. God hasn't restricted him any. He hasn't limited him. This idea of giving him the Spirit by measure, okay, I'll partition off your portion and I'll give you, I'll measure this out. No, he hasn't given Jesus the Spirit by measure. He has given it to him in its entirety. And so we are so limited in what we have, the power that we have, the ability that we have. But Jesus is unlimited. The Spirit hasn't been given to him by measure. He's not been put in a box. He has not been measured off. He's not been partitioned. He has the fullness. The Bible says that in him dwelleth the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Right? And so I must decrease because all power belongs to him. And the seventh and the last thing that we have here. I must decrease because salvation is only of and through him. Why would we make it about ourselves whenever ourselves are powerless to save ourselves or anyone else for that matter? And so we look in verse number 36, 35 and 36. The Father loveth the Son and hath given all things into his hand. He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life. And he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. Every man, woman, boy, and girl, their eternity lies in Christ. We find in verse number 35, it says, The Father loveth the Son. Why is it that God loves us? Because he loves the Son. We are accepted in the Beloved. He is our ticket, if you will. I hate to achieve him in that way. But he is the only way that we get to heaven. It is his righteousness that gets us there. It is his righteousness that has paid the payment and that gets us uh, reconciled, restored into a right relationship with God. It is only through him that we have any hope, any chance whatsoever of salvation. And so whenever we are puffed up, whenever we are arrogant, whenever we think we are something, whenever we have increased, 
we have no right to stand on that ground because I cannot save a single person. I can't force a person. I can't coerce someone. I can't even manipulate someone into trusting Christ. And even with that, it is Christ that saves. We can have the most gorgeous of church buildings. We can have services that are orchestrated so well and everything in its place. We can dress in our very best. We can put on all of the airs. We can do all of these things to have all of the religious trappings that we have it all together. And if we are doing it by our own power, for ourselves to be seen, trying to produce anything by our own abilities, we have done nothing. It is only by Christ. And so with that, doesn't matter what you think of yourself. It doesn't matter if you picture yourself being the greatest soul winner that this world's ever seen. It isn't you that saves a single soul. It isn't you that brings a single person to heaven. You couldn't save yourself. You can't save anybody else. It is only by Jesus. So we need to be sure that we are not putting ourselves up on that pedestal. That we aren't increasing ourselves and lifting ourselves up, but instead we are decreasing so that he may increase. That we're not standing in the way of what he wants to do, of his power, of his ability, of his plan. That we're not standing in his way, but instead we are stepping down into our proper place and letting God have control, letting Jesus have preeminence, and that we make much of him instead of making much of ourselves. And so in all these things that we see here, this isn't about putting ourselves down. It's about us in humility finding our proper place. It's about us making much of Jesus. That's what we want to do. And so I'm not in a competition with anyone. Christ isn't a threat to my life. All things come from him. My life points to him. He is above all and he knows all. He has all power and he is the only means of salvation. And whenever I look at all that he is, all that he's done, all that he can do, I want to give him his proper place. I want to get out of his way and let him be God. I want to understand that he is God and I am not. I must increase because I want to see him, excuse me, I must decrease. I think I misspoke. I must decrease because I want to see him increase. I want to see him increase in my life. I want to see his power rest upon my life. I want to see him working in my life. But not only do I want to see him increase in my life, I want to see him increase in yours. I want to see him increase in this church. I want to see his working in this community. I want to see his working in this world. And for that to happen, you and I as Christians need to get out of the way. To quit hogging the glory that belongs to him. To quit making it about us and lift him up to the place where he belongs. And so that is my desire. That is a message I believe God would have us to, to preach today. Let's decrease that he might increase. Because ultimately it's all about him. Let's go to Lord, we come to you today. Thank you for your blessings. We thank you for this passage that we see here, Lord, and Lord, just for the, the heart that John had, for the perspective that he had.
And Lord, I know we kind of fall into the position, the same thinking, the patterns of thinking that his disciples fell into. We start comparing and we start competing and we fear uh, what you're doing and the, the plans and the works that you have for us. We get puffed up and think we know that we know that we know more than what we do and that we're more capable than what we are. And in the end, Lord, we're best off just to leave it in your hands. We're best off just to trust you, allow you to do what only you can do and realize that without you, we're nothing. Lord, may we decrease that you may increase. May you be honored and glorified through our lives. May us, may we put you on that uh, place that you deserve, Lord, high and lifted up in our mind's eye and our hearts, Lord. And Lord, help us to never, never get these things backward. Help us not to uh, steal the glory that only you, only you deserve. And Lord, we thank you for all these things, Lord. And we pray in Jesus' name, and Amen. amen.